0: you take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Alec Moutier, who comments on Isaiah, says that the hear, hearing the Word of God is a serious business. I want to amend that, or to add to it, to say that hearing the Word of God is a dangerous business. In Hebrews, for example, the New Testament book, we are called to live with our ears open to the word it says there today today if you hear his voice harden not your hearts that book ends with this searching description of the word of god for the word of god is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow And discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word of God is dangerous. Jesus, speaking to the churches in the book of Revelation, ends by addressing those who have ears to hear significantly addressing churches, he realizes that not everybody who's there is going to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and warns the church, each of them, that if there's no one to hear, then the candlestick will be taken away. The witness will be snuffed out. In other words, hearing the Word of God is never a neutral experience. In Isaiah chapter 6, as we saw last time, we have a record of a theophany. That is, an appearance of God. We can actually be more specific. It's an appearance of God in Christ. John 12 tells us that Isaiah that day saw Jesus' glory. So it's a theophany of God, and in particular of the second person of the Godhead. It's a vision of majesty and mercy of holiness and grace, it's defining of the prophet's understanding of who God is and gives rise to Isaiah's signature description of God as the Holy One of Israel, which you find throughout his great book. The sight of God's holiness and majesty devastates the prophet, robs him of any sense of worth any sense of self, and only a sense of sin. He is broken, he is coming apart, until God reaches out to him and cleanses him. And it's against that background that the Word of God then comes in verse 8. And what we discover from this chapter is this, that hearing God can be life-altering, hearing God can be eye-opening, And hearing God can be heart-hardening. Hearing God can be life-altering. Because God, when He speaks, you notice, He speaks in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord. Whenever God speaks in the Old Testament, He speaks through His servants, the prophets, and He speaks through them to the people of God. Now, Isaiah 6 is a favorite passage in uh, meetings that are addressing the subject of a call to Christian service when I was growing up, I remember going to many such meetings and hearing many such sermons on this passage, though invariably the sermons ended at verse eight and uh, there 's a reason for that which we 'll see in a moment but uh, in listening to those sermons, usually the point of the sermon was to get to verse 8 and to say, here is the Lord, and the Lord is calling. He's talking to someone in this room today. I have sat in the gallery, and I've sat downstairs in the, in the pews in the church I grew up in and heard people say that, and every time I heard it, I asked myself, is that me? I was two at the time. Ask myself, is, is this me that he's speaking to? And uh, as time passed, of course, there became a growing sense that, yes, God was calling me into the ministry, and others felt that God was calling them to be missionaries. And I asked God if I was to be a missionary where I was to go, and I I prayed about that. And for a a few short months, I I thought about Thailand. Another period, I, I thought about Brazil because of the influences that were on my life, but I came to the conclusion that that was not what God wanted for me. Well, we hear in this great passage, no doubt, a call to serve. But it's quite specific, isn't it? It's quite specific. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here we have a picture of the throne room of heaven. Here is the command and control center of the universe. Here is the hub of world government. Here is the seat of all authority. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Here is God in this place of great power and glory. Here He is with a universe to manage. Here He is with a work to be done. Here He is with messages that need to be sent. And here He is looking for a messenger that He might send, who will go for us. You notice that that language, that shoes there... Is reminiscent of the language of Genesis 1, when God says, "Let us make man in our image." How would you understand the "us" in that verse? Does it indicate plurality in the Godhead? Well, some think that here is God speaking in His heavenly court. He's speaking with His seraphim. Uh, he's, he's consulting together. "Let us make man in our image," but. God never in the Bible consults with any creature when plotting some plan or scheme or decree that He wants to initiate in the world. Is it, on the other hand, a plural of majesty? If you've watched any of these uh, terrible BBC shows that they have where they go back to uh, the 19th century England and there's Queen Victoria, she invariably talks about herself as, we, we are not amused, is one of her famous expressions. Uh, is this the plural of majesty? Well, the plural of majesty, as far as we know, doesn't go far back this far to Isaiah's day. Probably from a New Testament canonical point of view, that is taking the Bible as a whole, we, are, I think, are expected to see here at least a hint, an early expression of the dynamic nature of God, and especially, of course, what became finally revealed in Christ, the idea of God as Trinity, three in one and one in three. Well, here is the Holy God. Here is the God in His majestic glory. The God, I think, in the Trinity of His sacred persons, since Jesus is identified as chiefly the one who is connecting with Isaiah. And He is asking whom He may send. The word He uses there is the word that's normally used of His sending. The prophets, the prophets were sent ones, just as in the New Testament. It is the apostles who are the sent ones. These are no ordinary individuals. These aren't aren't ministers or missionaries in in the modern sense of the word. These are people who receive direct revelation from God and are sent directly by God into the world with God's word. Isaiah responds, here am I. Don't put too much into that. It's almost like there's a group of people and somebody is saying, is there anybody who can go and and get this pizza for us or whatever? And somebody clears clears their throat and says, I'll do it. That kind of attitude. Here Here is Isaiah identifying himself. But it's even more than that, I think. Because if you notice in this passage... Isaiah has spoken once before. That first time he says, woe is me. That first time, overwhelmed by the holiness of God and the majesty of God, he realizes that he is a creature before the Creator. He realizes that he is a sinner before the holy God. And in that context, Isaiah realizes that though he's been a prophet, Though he's been serving God, all of his ministry, all of his talents, all of his gifts, even his calling, everything is shot through by sin. He recognizes that he is a sinner. Woe is me. I am damned. I am doomed. I am condemned. I am cursed. Woe is me. Because nobody... ...can see God as they are and walk away and feel that they have not sinned or fallen short of the glory of God. There is no room for self-congratulation or self-magnification in the presence of such a holy God. There is only this sense, woe is me. We come together to worship. We come into God's presence. We hear the word of God spoken... We praise Him for His glory, and we immediately confess our sin because we recognize that in the presence of a holy God, we are sinners. So what has happened? Why is now He saying to God, here am I? And the answer is that between the woe is me and the here and I, here am I. He has been touched by the gracious mercy of God. Look at verse 7. Touched by the mercy of God, there is cleansing for him. There is cleansing from sin for him. And he is now able to serve, able to please God, able to go in God's business and to be God's representative in the world. We find a similar experience in the life of Simon Peter in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5, where Jesus, you remember, Uh, delivers this miraculous catch of fish that just blows the mind of these fishermen who think they know all about being fishermen, know all about the business. And here is this teacher who comes along, and by his word there is this miraculous catch of fish. And Simon Peter is overwhelmed by it. He falls down at Jesus' feet. He says to Jesus, Go away from me, Lord. Depart from me, because I am a sinful man. And those who were with him saw this. And we're told that Jesus says to Peter, Don't be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, we're told, they left everything and they followed him. Recognizing he was a sinner, Peter was then ready to follow Jesus. Now when we're confronted by the holiness of God, you remember uh, Isaiah was dismantled at the sight of the holiness of God. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Here was his business, he spoke. Here was his calling, he was a prophet. Without the cleansing of God, he realized that doing what he could do, no matter what how talented he was, was unacceptable. His works were unacceptable in the eyes of God. Even doing good things, even serving God, wasn't Pleasing in the eyes of God. This is one of the things we discover when we become a Christian. Before we become a Christian, before we come to God for cleansing and pardon, what we do, all of it, all of our good works, no matter how good they are, no matter how charitable they may be, no matter how wonderful they may be, no matter how much they gain the attention of other people of the world, what we do is unacceptable in God's sight. It is not good. There is no one that does any good. The Bible says that. But be very careful. The Bible only says that in Romans 3, before you get to that part of Romans where it says, But, but now, but now God has acted for my unrighteousness. God has dealt with my unrighteousness and my ungodliness. Now God sees me as righteous and godly in Jesus. And guess what? "...from the moment that I come to know Jesus, my works, which were not good enough to save me, may now please him. I may serve him with joy, because God sees my works through the righteousness and blamelessness of Jesus. They become a pleasure to him." Now, obviously, his pleasure is different depending on how good my good works are. And uh, I may give him more pleasure one day than I do the next, or I may give him more pleasure at one point in the day than I do uh, at at another point in the day. But the point is this, that from the moment I come to know Christ, my works please him. And he encourages me. He encourages me to these good works. This poem of good works that he refers to in Ephesians chapter 2. Well, the Word of God comes to this man. And whereas before he's excluded, now at this moment, you see, he is able to say to the Lord, here I am, send me. There is no hesitation any longer. There is no overwhelming sense of grief and sin any longer. He has accepted the Word of God through the seraphim, that his sin has been paid for, that his guilt has been covered. He accepts that by faith. And so he speaks up and says, here am I, here am I send me. God hears hears us when we've been cleansed by his word and work. So the word of God comes to this man. There's nothing presumptuous about it, but I want you to notice what God wants him to do. He wants him to go and say, he said to me, go and say to this people, this people, not my people, though they were his people, but now they're this people, the people. There's a sense of distance, perhaps, a sense of estrangement going on between Israel and Judah and Yahweh, but they're still the people who the prophet comes to. His business is to speak to the covenant people of God, to the assembly of God's people, to the church of God's people, whatever state they're in. He brings the word of God primarily to the people of God. And you notice God is a speaking God. The messengers he sends, he sends to speak. God's messages come in words. Proclamation is the task of those that go. They go to speak the words that God has given to them, the prophets, and those that follow them in the task of proclaiming the gospel. And this was a life-changing event in the life of God. Of the prophet a life-altering event this Word of God that came to Isaiah changes his whole future the Word of God is life-altering secondly the Word of God is eye-opening can be eye-opening yeah I want you to look at verse 10 and look at the latter part of verse 10 and you will notice of course that all of this section from uh, 9 through to the end of the chapter is negative But for a moment I just want you to look at the second half of verse 10 and see it in its positive expression here is what the Word of God can do very often does in fact we might say that God's primary and normal and delightful work is to do this the normal activity of the Word of God is under the preaching of the Word of God is that people would see with their eyes hear with their ears understand with their hearts And and turn, that is, repent and be healed. That's what God normally does through His Word. Normally, through His Word, He helps us see. Not physically see, metaphorically see, that is, get it. He helps us to get the message. He helps us to grasp the truth. He helps us to get our heads around what God is saying to us. To see our need. To see our sin. To see our absolute dependence on God. We see it. The penny drops. Normally that's what we mean by seeing, grasping, gripping the gospel. Hearing with their ears. Understanding with their heart. Turning and being healed. The word of God gives faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. That's normally the work of the Word of God. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And that remains true. But it wasn't Isaiah's ministry. Look at this third thing. Hearing God's Word may be heart-hardening. Look at Isaiah's commission. Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. It gets worse. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. What a devastating commission. This is not what a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young person out of seminary wants to hear. They want to have a prime location with the right demographic and a fat budget. And then they'll feel confident to do the Lord's work. Isaiah never got that. It doesn't always work like that. Some of you come from churches and Many people in those churches don't believe the Bible, and you're perhaps one of a few who does, and you know how difficult that may be. Perhaps you're a minister, and you've stopped off in the church this morning, and you minister in a small congregation or even a large congregation, but nonetheless, you're finding you're hitting your head against stone. Nobody's listening. You know that Isaiah's calling is not totally unique, though it is unique in a particular sense. No, Isaiah did not have the option of deciding what days he was to work in or what people he had to work with. It wasn't simply that he was being called to work among the resistant or recalcitrant people. It wasn't simply that his message would be rejected. It wasn't simply that his preaching would leave people less sensitive or to spiritual things than they had been before. No, God is saying to him, your preaching will be fruitless. Fruitless totally fruitless. You will spend decades of your life ardently proclaiming the word that I give you and they will not turn. And, Isaiah, your preaching will be the means I use to blind their eyes and stop their ears. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? Can you imagine someone having a ministry like this? That Isaiah given this ministry by which God makes him the instrument of the judicial hardening of people. People who took the Word of God for granted for so long. People who assumed that their special status as God's people meant they were immune from ultimate disaster. People who had abandoned any meaningful relationship with God. We know from the general introduction to this book, the background, to this Word of God, to this man, we know that in chapter 1, verse 5, they've been called to obedience. We know from chapter 2, verse 5, they've been called to walk in the light. We know from chapter 5, verse 7, that they've been called to produce a harvest of righteousness. And Isaiah had gone to them, spoken to them, pleaded with them, argued with them, invited them. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they may be as white as snow. Isaiah has used every rhetorical, prophetic rule in the book in order to try and communicate to these people the seriousness of where they stand in relationship to God. And now the Word of God comes to him again. Go to these people. Go to these people. A terrifying purpose. To dull minds, stop ears, cover eyes, so that people could not see, hear, or understand. You would fire Isaiah as a pastor. You would. This is not the accessible gospel we talk about in other circles. And it presents us with a theological problem, doesn't it? God is not saying, as we might hear him say to a preacher today, look, go and preach to those people, but don't be surprised if they don't listen or if they're a bit hardened in their hearts. No, God's saying to Isaiah, I'm going to harden their hearts through your ministry. Go, say this. This will harden their hearts. Now, the interesting thing is, if you look at the Bible, you find two things going on simultaneously. You find, on the one hand, in the Bible, people harden their own hearts. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Other people in the Bible harden their hearts. People regularly sit under the ministry of the Word of God and they resist it. They resist it for a whole variety of reasons. There are some people they will not let God speak to them through, and there are some things they will not let God speak to them about. And they harden their hearts, and the more they harden it, the less sensitive they are to ever hearing from anybody the Word of God to them. It's a reality. So, people do harden their hearts, but the Bible says at one and the same time that God hardens hearts. Theologians talk about... The proximate cause and the ultimate cause of hardening. The proximate cause is people's own guilt, their inbuilt resistance, their allergy to God. The ultimate cause is God himself, God's decree. And Isaiah is told to go to this particular people and to tell them that the divine purpose has now been revealed. The vineyard of Israel will be destroyed. The foreigner powers are already being summoned. The end will come. Isaiah's commission is not about mission strategy. It has to do with what the effect of his preaching is going to be. No wonder he says to the Lord. You notice, here's the third time he speaks. Verse 11. How long, O Lord? How long? Is he asking, how long am I going to have this job? No. How long? How long? Is my ministry going to have this negative side effect? No. How long is this hardening of your people? How long is this hardening going to last? That's his question. Because this is the answer that God gives him. It's an appalling answer. Look at it. Until cities lie waste without inhabitants. Houses without people. The land desolate, waste, waste. The Lord removes his people far away. There's the exile. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, that is in the land, it will be burned again. In other words, whether you stay or whether you're taken into exile, it's going to be devastation. Devastation all over the place. And you notice the prophet reaches forward in time. Reaches forward quite a bit in time to the exile under Babylon. He reaches beyond that exile into the time when there are people back in the land. And still the hardening goes on. It's a tough word, isn't it? Now, here's my question. When did this begin? In the next chapter, you'll find that the hardening begins immediately. As uh, Isaiah sent to King Ahaz, and the hardening begins begins. There in chapter 7, we find the Assyrians are going to be responsible for the destruction of northern Israel, the, 12, the ten tribes to the north. It will be Assyria will bring an end to them. By the end of the book, we're being told Babylon will bring an end to Judah and Jerusalem. Now, what is the particular charge then that God has against Israel? Well, the the reference to the terebinth and the oak, is often a reference to the high places where they worship foreign gods. There's no question that there must be some idolatry aspect in this. We know in chapter 2, verse 8, for example, one of Israel's major sins was idolatry. They worship the work of their hands. In chapter 29, they're accused of trusting in man-made tradition rather than in God. In Isaiah 30... They are accused of trusting in Egypt's help as a foreign ally rather than God as their ally who will come to their aid. In other words, they do not take God's word seriously. Greg Beale, uh, in a lot of his writing, talks about idolatry and he defines idolatry like this. Whatever the heart clings to for ultimate security, whatever the heart clings to for ultimate security is an idol. And we can discover what some of this application of Isaiah 6 might be, for it's quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted by Jesus in Matthew 13. When he starts to speak to people, you remember, there was that decisive moment he started to speak to the people in parables. And he explains why he's doing it. Listen to Jesus. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Jesus' parables were not given as sermon illustrations. They were part of the blinding process. God only reveals himself to those he chooses to do so, and the rest are blinded. Now, when Isaiah asks the question, how long will this blindness and deafness last? God's response there is that it will last right through the Babylonian exile. And what Jesus saw in unbelieving Israel in his day is a continuation of that unbelieving, blinded remnant that returned from captivity. Of course, they weren't They weren't uh, sacrificing to idols. They had no images set up that they were bowing down before or or burning candles uh, for. But nonetheless, as you look in the New Testament, you find that Jesus is exposing their idolatry. If uh, Beale's definition is right, that whatever the heart clings to for ultimate security is an idol, then the people of his day were worshipping money. Jesus calls them, calls money, a god, mammon. The devil, the devil is seen as a God, the God of this age. And in particular, Jesus accuses them, in Mark chapter 7, of neglecting the commandment of God and holding to the tradition of men. They were replacing trust in Jesus with trust in men. Trust in Jesus with trusting in the traditions of men. Or take John 12. It's come to the very end of Jesus' ministry as John describes it to Israel. Right at the very end, they're already plotting to kill him. Right at the very end, the Father has spoken again from heaven, promising that he will glorify his Son. Right at the very end, they have heard, seen the signs and wonders John's gospel comes to that culminating point where there is this final turning away from Jesus where they determine that they will not listen to him. And he determines that he will not speak to them ever again. Ever again. John 12 is definitive. He turns from Israel. He spoke no longer to them. Chapter 13, verse 1, he came to his own, and he loved them to the end. He's turning from Israel, and he's turning to his own. By chapter 15, he's saying, I'm the true Israel. I'm the true vine. You belong to the Israel of God if you belong to me. And Isaiah 6 is quoted to underline the fact that here the hardening finds its ultimate fulfillment. People reject Jesus. And then in Acts 28, where the Apostle Paul has been going to the synagogue and preaching, and now he's in, now he's uh, gone all the way around, as it were, his circuit. He's done the same thing everywhere, and now there comes the final, going to the synagogue. And they reject him, and they reject the gospel. And he says, from now on, the priority of the ministry will be Towards the Gentiles. Because ultimately, the rejection of Jesus is the rejection of Israel's prophetic word. It's the rejection of Isaiah's ministry. It's the rejection of Ezekiel's and Daniel's ministry. It's a rejection of their own scriptures, their own prophetic Word, you read these scriptures, but you don't see. They bear witness to me. Quite decisive. Isaiah's ministry is pivotal for the history of redemption. And yet God uses Israel's rejection. So we discover in Acts 28, he uses Israel's rejection to open the door to those of us, most of us here, who are Gentiles to include us into the family of God. Now, in all of these New Testament uses of Isaiah 6, there is a principle at work that under the preaching of the gospel, the deaf become deafer and the blind become blinder. No matter how affecting, no matter how effective, no matter how pressing gospel promises are spelt out, no matter how gracious gospel invitations that are given to people, Jesus and Paul discovered throughout their ministry and the church has learned throughout its history that those who stop listening to the Word of God find their hearts hardened. Just as Pharaoh's was hardened, the warning of Hebrews still obtains, Be careful not to harden your hearts. The exhortation of Jesus remains Let the one who is ears to hear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So I guess the question this morning is how open are we to the Word of God? You say, oh, we come to 10th Presbyterian Church. How open are you to the Word of God? Well, I'm here every Sunday. How open are you to the Word of God? Willing to turn? And be healed. There is nothing more tragic. And nothing more serious. There is nothing that makes me feel. Utterly at an end. Of all things human. Than to consider that a person. In this room. May have hardened their heart. Against the gracious pleading, promising, lovely words of their Savior, calling them, gently calling them, lovingly calling them, deliberately calling them, now, today, 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 if you hear my voice, harden not. Your heart. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we pray that each of us here would have that sensitive openness to your word. You help us to see it, to get it. Uh, Help us to trust you. Let it lead us to Jesus, we pray. And let it lead to others coming into the kingdom, we ask. We ask that we would see and hear and believe in Christ. We pray these things in his strong name. Amen.